The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and I will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and, they, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one Ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the, of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came... They went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, 
Your word is like a sword that cuts right into our hearts and exposes us for who we are. We pray that our defenses may not be up today, that your spirit will soften us to be able to receive a confronting message as Jesus enters into a corrupt city and does what he does there. We pray that we'll understand what he was trying to do and more importantly, what he has done for us in rescuing us from an impossible situation that we could never fix on our own. Help us to receive this message and help us to see that it's the message of life that we have to share to this broken and corrupt world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a few years ago, we had a ministry trainee, and he was given an opportunity to write a sermon and to preach it. And about uh, two weeks before he was about to do that, he showed me his draft, and I tried my best to edit and correct it, but eventually I uh, said to him, mate, you've got to just throw it away uh, and start again, right? It sounds a bit harsh, right? Uh, but it's something that I've done a few times myself, right? I write a sermon, and after the first draft, I just kind of delete the whole file and start again. And sometimes I've even had to delete it twice and start again. You know, you, you write something, and, and it's such a messy, uh, convoluted mess, it's just uh, impossible just to... To fix, you have to throw it away and, and start again. All right, some of you are bakers and you know the same feeling. You go to bake, and then, like my wife, you put in salt rather than sugar right, into the cake mix, and it rises beautifully, and then and you eat it, it's disgusting, and you just throw it away. You can't fix that stuff, right? Or maybe there is a situation at work, you know, which is really impossible. Difficult relationships, workload, and work type that just grates against you and goes against what you believe in. And there's no other option but to quit. Right? Sometimes things just can't be fixed. They're so broken, they can't be repaired. They need to be removed and be replaced. Now, certainly we don't make decisions like that lightly. Right? I, I, it gave me no joy to tell the ministry trainee to, to junk the whole draft and start again. And, and it's, it's painful, right? After all that hours of baking a cake, to have to throw it away. And certainly it seems like a drastic thing to have to quit your job and move on. But sometimes it is exactly what we need to do. Sometimes that's the only solution that we have. Now our passage this morning is about this kind of thing. That sometimes things are just so broken, they need to be destroyed, and something new needs to take its place. It seems drastic, and it's easy to question and to doubt whether it's really necessary But as we'll see in this passage, that trust in God is what we need to do. That sometimes he needs to destroy before he can save. Now we come to chapter 11, which I mentioned before, which is really the start of the second last section of Mark's gospel. We've just been through uh, three chapters, 8 to 10, which is like the middle section. This journey from where Jesus began his ministry up north in Galilee, and he's been moving towards Jerusalem, and he's been on the way, right? In the last few chapters, he's been on the way to the final destination of his mission. And in chapter 11, verse 1, finally he arrives where he needs to be, right, in Jerusalem. And here, in chapter 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, we see that he's uh, in the city, right, in his holy city, that the Old Testament has been kind of uh, prophesying that the Messiah, the king, God's Christ will come to. The time has come for salvation hope to be fulfilled. Right? This is sort of the end game, right? if you're into the popular uh, scene today. It's the end game of, of Mark's gospel as he enters Jerusalem. Now, these 26 verses are 
can be quite hard to understand if you don't know your Old Testament. Right? It's kind of dripping with Old Testament references. Uh, but it's pretty easy to understand when you do know the background. And I'll try and uh, kind of walk us through that to help us understand this passage. Uh, it, but it's not just the end game for, for Mark's gospel either. As you can tell, with all these Old Testament references, it's the end game of the Old Testament. The, the purposes, the plans and promises that God has made from Old Testament times being fulfilled here. Now, let's walk, uh, let's walk through this passage, uh, and I, I will bring some implications along the way, but there are a couple of big implications that I'm going to talk about at the end. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is where the story begins, right? Verse 1, Jesus and his disciples, and there's a crowd that's following him, uh, are, are coming into Jerusalem, right? They're at they 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 Bethphage and at Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, and there's a crowd following Jesus, probably from the Galilean region coming down. A different crowd, uh, possibly, probably, than the crowd who crucified Jesus, right? That's the Jerusalem crowd. This is kind of the Galilean crowd that's following Jesus at this point. Uh, and, and they stop uh, at this place called Mount of Olives, which is about three kilometers out of Jerusalem. Uh, I will show you a map, but it wouldn't really make much sense. It's just dirt, right? Uh, three kilometers, you can see Jerusalem, you can see the temple. They're on this mountain, and Jesus sends two disciples uh, into a village nearby, um, in order to get a colt, right, a donkey. And it's all quite strange, really, when you, when you think about it. Um, Steve tried his best to read enthusiastically about these six verses, about this donkey. But you're probably thinking to yourself, what's going on? Why so specific? Why so repetitive? There's a colt tied up. It's never been ridden. They will be questioned as to what it's for, and they're to, they're to tell the owner of this donkey, the Lord needs it. And then we're told that the two disciples go off and there's a repetition that what Jesus says happens. Six verses of the Bible given up to this instruction about a donkey. Now what's going on here? Right? Why so much emphasis? Now it's not clearly stated for us, but I think the reason is trust. Right? This whole passage is dripping with trust. Jesus is making here a promise, a prediction that comes true in a matter of minutes. Because he has already made some predictions that's going to come true in a matter of days. And he will make predictions that will come true in a matter of years and, and decades and maybe even millennia. But here, in a matter of minutes, Jesus' words come true. Jesus is preparing the disciples for a difficult week that is to come. For this is the, the, the last week of Jesus' life. In the next Friday would be Good Friday, as we know it. It will be the death of Jesus. The next Sunday will be when Jesus rises again, right? He, he's preparing them for things that they do not yet understand, right? You know, they're, they're, they're confused when Jesus predicts that he's going to suffer and, and die and rise again. And he's preparing them by making promises, even weird ones like this, instructions that will come true within minutes. And Mark writes all this down to help us reading today as well. Right? We know a lot more about what happens next. But in reading this, we are made to see just how loving and how caring Jesus is in preparing his disciples. Even a simple prediction about a donkey and what people will say helped them to be able to cope with the coming days. And as we have scriptures, we have even more of Jesus' words telling us about life and about the present and the future to help us cope with the coming days and the coming years. We see that the disciples had every reason to trust in Jesus because what Jesus says always happens. 
And we have that same reason, even greater reason, to trust in Jesus. We know of the promises that he has made and the way that he has fulfilled them. We know of his arrest that happened soon, his death, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and so much more. Promises fulfilled that we know. Jesus speaks, and it happens. Now, this uh, cult has been secured, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Right? It's a famous scene that many of you may know if you've been to Sunday school, or you've been to Easter's, right? It's the uh, Palm Sunday, as they call it, as Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Um, the crowds are following him, like I mentioned, probably the Galilean crowds, which is different from the Jerusalem crowds that shout crucify him later on. Uh, and they're spreading their cloaks on the road, and they're paving the path with branches. Right? It's kind of a coronation ceremony if you know your Old Testament. But even if you don't know your Old Testament, it's clear that Jesus is no more hiding in the shadows. Because if you know from the past 10 chapters, Jesus has been repeating, don't tell anybody who I am. Right? People who, who do know that he's the Christ, they say, shh, keep quiet. It's a secret. But the hour has come for Jesus to be made known. Last night, I was watching the election coverage, and there was a very comical scene where these uh, news crews were chasing down Scott Morrison's car, right? So, sorry, Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Australia, we just call them ScoMo. Uh, but since we're Asian, we should show more respect, right? Prime Minister Scott Morrison. And they were following him, right, in this car. And, and then there's, you know, there's police cars in front, police cars behind, Australian federal policemen walking beside. It's clear who's in that car, right? It's like this. It's a scene that the Old Testament has prepared us to see that the Christ, God's King, is entering into his city. So Zechariah 9, verse 9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right? This is the Old Testament. Zechariah, hundreds of years ago, talked about how the Christ, the King, God's Savior, will come riding in humbly. Humbly on a donkey, not on a chariot, not on a grand horse, but in humility. And as we've heard Jesus has been saying the last few days, he's going to humble himself by giving himself as a ransom for many, dying for the sins of the world. So we're entering the end game now, aren't we? Now, in the final week of Jesus' life, he enters into Jerusalem three times. Right? He enters into Jerusalem three times by choice. Um, verse 11 in our passage, chapter 11, verse 11, you'll see that. He enters the first time. Then he leaves back to Bethany, where it's kind of his base camp. Then he comes back again in verse 15. And then again in verse 27. And then for the fourth time that he comes into Jerusalem, he's arrested, dragged in by soldiers. Right? That's in chapter 14. Now, each time that, Jeru- that Jesus goes into Jerusalem... We find him always entering into the temple. Once again, it's an Old Testament fulfillment. When, when the Lord comes, the Christ comes, when, when the end comes, the Lord will come suddenly into the temple. Now, you've got to understand the temple is a major, major significance uh, uh, in God's people. Right? The, the temple, this is a little picture of a temple that you can visualize. Okay? It's a bit of a graphic uh, it's a grand place. The temple is where God chose to use as his dwelling place all right, on earth. So it's kind of that 
I don't think the laser will show up here, but it's that big structure that kind of goes up higher, okay? That's kind of the holy holies in there where God chose to, to represent his dwelling place on earth among his people. It's a place of access to God, right? You come in through the front gate and, and you do all these sacrifices to, to, to get closer to God. The only way to get close to God is to come to the temple, access to God. The place of sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So there were, there were altars at the front, altars in the middle, altars inside to, to enable that access through the sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins. It's the place of worship. If you regarded God as God, you would go to the temple and you would do all these things as an expression of your worship, your honor, your regard, your care for God. And so we find in chapter 11, uh, in verse 11, that Jesus enters Jerusalem, enters into the temple, and he looks around, and he turns around and he leaves. And it's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it, it seems. You expect fireworks. You expect there to be some kind of explosion, some kind of transformation. But nothing happens. Except, if you were to read your Gospels carefully, and you'll notice that Jesus looks around quite often. He is looking around to find something. And each time you see Jesus looking around, what is he looking to find? What you'll notice is that when Jesus looks around, he's looking to find faith. He's looking around to find signs of life. Right? He's looking around not to, not to admire how beautiful the temple is. He's looking around to scrutinize whether the people of God show signs of life and signs of faith and signs of fruitfulness. And you know, when Jesus looks around, he always walks away disappointed, doesn't he? We find out soon enough because he comes back the next day. Right? He comes back the next day, but he makes a pit stop. Before he enters Jerusalem and into the temple, he gets a pit stop because he's hungry. Right? He's man, he's fully God, fully man, he's hungry, and he sees in the distance a fig tree full of leaves. And so he goes to this fig tree full of leaves, and it's a weird scene. Now, if you look at the passage, right, verse 12 to 14 is this fig tree thing, and then 15 to 19 is the temple scene, and then in verse 20, it's the fig tree thing again. Now, you have been around, if you've been around the last couple of months, you know that Mark loves doing this structural thing called a sandwich, right? And here, the fig tree are like the, the bread, and then the temple scene is like the meat. And you've got to take the whole sandwich and eat it, right? Not, not weird people who just eat the top and then eat the patty, then eat the bottom. Don't eat sandwiches and burgers like that. That's wrong, right? God made sandwiches to be eaten like this. Okay, and so that's how we're meant to eat this passage, meant to understand this. The, 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 the fig tree can only be understood in relation to the temple, the meat in the middle, okay? But let me explain a bit about this uh, first scene of the fig tree. Now, it's pretty hard to understand this story, isn't it? Because we're very clearly told by the, the, the gospel writer Mark that it wasn't the season for figs. So why does Jesus curse this tree? Right, it's leaves, it's not the season for figs, why should he be expecting fruit? So some people say, well, maybe Jesus didn't know about horticulture. <laughs> he's a bit ignorant about this, and he just has a bad temper because he's hungry. You know, he's hangry. Yeah, you know how being hangry is, right? So he doesn't know much about horticulture, and he's just hangry, and he's just... Or he does know about seasons. He does know about horticulture, but he's just nasty. He's just not a nice guy. He knows... This tree is not supposed to bear fruit, but he just curses it anyway. Now, that's the kind of the accused Jesus kind of perspective, right? 
Then the, the defend Jesus perspective would be, you know, actually, olive trees, when they have leaves, they actually produce buds. They're not very nice to eat, but they're still edible. And so they're trying to defend Jesus, right? They really, he expected some pre-fruit to be formed. So attack, defend. I think they both missed the point in this story. They're both missing the point. The fig tree is a visual aid to understand the problem we see in the temple. Right? It's a visual aid to understand the problem we see in the temple. And once again, we go back to the Old Testament for some context to see that Israel is often referred to as a fig tree, right? metaphorically, as a fig tree. And the Old Testament speaks of how there should be fruit, there should be figs. And other times, it talks about how there should be grapes in the, on the vine. And, and, and there's all these agricultural metaphors because the people understand agriculture. They see fruit trees all the time. And God says, you're a fig tree, my people. Which means to say that you ought to have figs. You ought to have fruit. The king comes looking for fruitfulness and for faith. But does he find any? And this is where we go into the temple and we see what we see. It's so clear in verses 15 to 20 that there is no faith and there is no fruit in God's people. Another famous story, right? The, the temple is full of robbers. They're corrupt people taking advantage of those coming to the temple to worship. Now, this is uh, the week before Passover, which is when people stream in from everywhere, both the locals from Jerusalem as well as the surrounding Judeans, which is like the state, right? Jerusalem's the city, uh, the state is Judea, and from other areas, Galilee and beyond. All those who fear God come streaming into Jerusalem to this only temple to be able to offer the sacrifices as they're supposed to in worship of God. And these traders have come in and set up camp. And they are selling stuff that's needed to be sacrificed. But of course, because they are corrupt with a huge markup. Right? It's kind of like buying you know, beer and meat pies at Suncorp Stadium. Right? or buying food in the airport. I don't know why that Hungry Jack's in the airport is more expensive than Hungry Jack's in Turinga. Right? It's just a rot, right? It's corruption. And then there's money changes as well that's needed because people coming from, uh, from elsewhere need to, 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 to buy a special money that's used to buy these temple sacrifices. And of course, it's an exorbitant rate. The temple was given by God for people to access God to pray to God, to be a place to offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And these corrupt, faithless, fruitless people were blocking it off. They were blocking it off, replacing it with corruption, preventing worship, preventing access. And what would you expect the Christ, the Lord, God to do? Well, he comes with the wrath of God, doesn't he? He's flipping tables and he's throwing people out of there. He is angry. He is furious. In a sense, we're glad that he is, aren't we? If the temple is the place where people access God and corrupt people are blocking that off, what would you expect God to do? Now, let me just give a quick word about Jesus' anger and the wrath of God. Now, Jesus' anger and the wrath of God is supposed to be terrifying. If you can imagine the creator of all things, the almighty sovereign God, we would love for him to be gentle and loving, which he is. But you can imagine him using all his power to be angry at us. That's terrifying, isn't it? 
But at the same time, it is also loving and good. For in his wrath, Jesus tears down barriers that prevent worship. He uses anger to show that God is a jealous God who is jealous for his glory, but he's also jealous for the people to be able to receive his goodness, to be able to come to him and find forgiveness, and to be able to live the good life, to be restored to the relationship that we were created to have. The power of God's wrath achieves that. Jesus takes it personally. And we love that, don't we? That he takes it personally that corrupt and sinful people destroy what is good. And he will personally see to it that his plans for our greatest good is restored, even if it means that he has to be angry and bring judgment. Now, the corruption of the temple is ultimately a corruption of the leaders of the temple, who are supposedly the leaders of God's people. Right? We see them at the end of this episode standing there, seeing what Jesus has done, wanting to kill him, destroy him. Because ultimately, this corruption was overseen by them. And once again, this, this, this leadership isn't just a leadership problem, it's a, it's a sign of the, the nation's problem. We get the leaders we deserve, it's a saying, isn't it? Israel's leaders are corrupt because the people of God are corrupt. The temple problem is a leadership problem, but the leadership problem is itself a symptom of a wider problem. As Mark has told us over and over, faithlessness is a generational problem, is a humanity problem. There hasn't been faithfulness of fruit, not in the past, not in the present, and from the evidence of things, if nothing changes, not in the future either. Can you start to see how broken everything is? We return to the second fig tree uh, scene in verse 20 and 21, and we see the visual aid concludes. In verse 20, the next morning, the disciples and Jesus pass by the fig tree, and they see that the tree is now dead to the roots. All the leaves have fallen off. It's as dead as your door, right, in your house. And the, the, the comment that's made by, by Peter is that it's, it's dead to the roots. I'm not sure how you can see the roots, but maybe it's so eroded is the land around. You can even see dead roots. And what does this visual aid mean? Anyone tell me? Some of you just did NAPLAN recently, right? You meant to do comprehension. Okay, I won't call you out. Next time, next time. I'll prepare you in advance, right? The visual aid is telling us that the problem of God's people is a problem that goes all the way down to the roots. Right? It is rotten, corrupt to the core. The tree looked like it had leaves. It looked like there were signs of life, but Jesus is showing us through this visual aid that it really is dead, dead to the very core. There were no fruits, there is no fruits, and there will be no fruits. Now, at this point in time, we have a very big problem, don't we? It's an impossible problem. Now, we might not think so, but certainly the disciples thought so. I think they realize what Jesus is saying here, and they've come to understand the gravity and hopelessness of the situation. Because let's be clear about what Jesus is saying here, right, with the fig tree sandwich and the temple meat. What is he saying here? He's saying 
that the temple is totally corrupt and that it is beyond repair. The religious leaders and the people they represent are the reason for this corruption. They are rotten to the core. They are beyond repair. And what must happen is destruction. The visual aid of the tree. What must happen is destruction. What will happen, as Jesus so visually showed with the fig tree, is that it will be destroyed. And if you were one of the disciples, you'd be reeling. You'd be reeling at this point, right? You'd be thinking to yourself, temple destroyed? How will anyone be able to access God? The people corrupt and need to be judged? Doesn't that mean that everyone's going to be destroyed? What hope is there? What hope is there? And then we hear Jesus' response to finish off this section, right? His response is to urge them to trust God and to express that trust in prayer. Now, let's deal with the elephant in the room. Because every time we come to these verses uh, and we read it and we get tripped up. Because they sound great, don't they? But it doesn't work. Let's be honest. When you read it, they sound good. Right? You say to the mountain, get up and go into the sea. And you're like, yeah, right. You know, I, I pray for there not to be rain on Saturday so I can play golf. And what happened? It rained. Right? So even, you don't, I, 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 and why would you want to ask a mountain to go into the sea anyway? It's kind of weird, right? So we ask for other things, and they don't happen. And then we read a promise like, um, whatever you ask for, verse 24, just believe and you will receive. Christians like to say that, and then it doesn't happen. And then what they say, well, you didn't have enough faith. Right? So the burden's on you because you didn't have enough faith because if you really believed, you would have received it. Yes, that Bugatti Veyron, that mansion, you know, a paradise point, that sevens, straight sevens. Yeah, you asked for it, but you didn't really believe. And so the problem's on us. When you pray, forgive. Okay, that one we like because we understand. Okay, that makes sense. But the first two, it trips us up. Is this really what these verses are teaching us? <clears throat> Is it instructions that stand on its own in the middle of nowhere for how we can get anything that we pray for if we have enough faith and we forgive enough people? I suggest not, right? It's context, isn't it? This, this verses on prayer isn't suddenly Jesus, you know, judging trees and judging temples and saying, hey, let me tell you a bit about praying and getting everything you want. No, context tells us what's going on. Jesus speaks these words on prayer in response to the coming judgment to address the disciples' sense of hopelessness of the coming destruction. And Jesus' loving solution, the only way forward is to trust in God, right? Have faith in God. And these three statements about prayer aren't here to urge us to have more faith or to tell us that we should pray for whatever we want. No, these verses are here to urge us to consider the God that we pray to, the God that we ought to have faith in. These three prayer points are highlighting God. Highlighting God. He is the God who can do the impossible. Even humanly impossible things, like a mountain being plucked up and thrown into the sea, to be able to bring life even after destroying. Now, there's also something, there might be a little bit of an Easter egg here if you were a Jewish person, okay? You know Zechariah 9 9, the cult thing I showed you before? Right, you know the verse? Zechariah 9 9, the prophecy about the cult. 
If you fast forward to Zechariah 14, there's another prophecy made about the Messiah who will come, who will stand on the Mount of Olives, and he will say that when the Lord comes, this mountain will be flattened and a path made straight for the coming salvation. So maybe what Jesus is saying here is when you pray for this mountain, he's maybe probably standing on the Mount of Olives, saying in Zechariah 14, the coming of the Lord and salvation will be fulfilled. Now, I'm not sure. It's a bit hard to know for sure. But whatever it is, the point is that God will come and do the impossible of bringing salvation after destruction. He is the God who can grant anything that we truly need. So trust him. What do we truly need in this passage? Isn't anything anything? Isn't a car or house? Is how do I get out of this destruction? He is the God who enables forgiveness. So forgiveness should be the mark of the believer. When faced with an impossible problem, we need someone with infinite power. We need God. And the question is, will we trust him? Now let's try and bring it all together and think about two big implications from this passage. Let me repeat the main point of this passage. The king, as we've seen, comes into his city, into his temple, and he sees corruption to the core. And the only solution to such corruption is destruction. And the question is, what hope then is left? And Jesus' answer is, trust God. Trust God. Now, for us who knows what's going to come up in the next few chapters, we know why we can trust God. Because God gives Jesus as our Christ, our Savior. He will go to the cross. He himself will go and do the impossible work of being destroyed, taking on the destruction on himself, and then coming back to life to give us the hope of life. That's what God will do. He will do the impossible on taking the judgment of destruction on himself, putting it on his son, bringing us forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself will be the new temple, that through him we will have access to God. Through him we can pray. And through him, we can have forgiveness. That's what this passage is pointing us forward to. Now, how should this impact us? Now, firstly, if you've not yet come to see that you're rotten to the core, then today is the day to really consider this. Now, you might be a really, really nice person by human standards. But by God's standards, you are like that fig tree with leaves, signs of life, but bearing no fruit. You might be having signs of life and and having even moral good deeds, but there is no faith. There is no honor of God in your life. And the scripture's teaching is that by God's standards, you are sinful to the roots. The scriptures talk about us having a sinful nature, right? A sinful nature. Now, it doesn't mean that everything we do is sin, but that everything is tainted by sin. We can do a lot of good. We can show a lot of green. But at the core, we are far away from God. That we are so messed up as far as God is concerned. We are so far away from the kind of people that God created, which if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, we were created in the image of God. But none of us live up to that image. 
And God says, we can't just be fixed with a little bit of help. We can't just be fixed with a bit of guidance, some instruction. We can't even be fixed with a major renovation. It isn't just that he needs to you know, lop off some branches for it to grow again. Or maybe put extra fertilizer in the ground or replant us to a more fertile land. God says that we are so bad that we need to be destroyed and then start again. Now, this probably, definitely maybe, is the most confronting thing you ever hear in your life. For in our world, we are told that we are born good, that we're inherently good people. But God's word says to us, no, we're inherently bad. And the only way is to start again. Which is why Jesus so lovingly says, trust God. When you come to that place, when you realize that I ought to be destroyed, and then you hear Jesus says, trust God, because he provides the solution, the salvation that comes through he himself, through his son being destroyed. And he offers that to us. Then the question is, why will you not trust him? Why will you not trust him? The infinitely powerful and good God who is perfectly just is loving beyond our comprehension, doing the impossible of saving us by taking the destruction on himself. And so Jesus urges us to believe and not doubt. To pray to a God who does the impossible of saving us. And of course, to be people who forgive others because the immensity of how we've been forgiven It's just absolutely huge. Now, the second implication is a word especially to believers. Does our trust in God and in Jesus' words lead us to share boldly about the bad news and the good news of the gospel? Do we truly believe that the problem of the people around you, the people in your household, your family, your housemates, your classmates, your colleagues, the strangers walking around the street who do not trust in Jesus, do you truly believe that they need more than just a little help, a little guidance, a little support, some renovation in their life, some counseling, some education, some extra finances and resources? Do you believe that? Or do you believe what scriptures say? That everyone is lost beyond hope, corrupt and broken to the core, and that destruction is the only way forward. What do you believe about the people around you, really? Because what you believe impacts what you will say to them, isn't it? There's someone very dear to me who I spoke to just recently, and he calls himself a Christian, and he's dating and considering marrying this non-Christian girl who used to be a Christian when she was younger, and then renounced and walked away. And so I asked him, how do you feel about that? Because I'm worried for his salvation too, because I'm not sure whether he truly believes. He says, well, I don't really care. That's her business. And I said, as a Christian, don't you believe that those who don't trust in Jesus will be destroyed and face eternal judgment? And then he kind of went, I'm not sure that he can call himself a genuine believer if he doesn't really care about this, if he doesn't really see this as being true. It's hard, isn't it? It's a hard message to receive. That's hard enough. 
but it's an even harder message to share, especially in our current social climate. It's considered unloving. It kind of sounds unloving. It's considered hate speech. It sounds kind of hateful, but we know that it isn't, is it? Have you heard of the burning platform? Uh, it's a store. It's a principle that came out of this accident, right? In um, um, in an oil rig. It's called the Piper Alpha oil rig. In 1988, it exploded, right, due to a system failure. The flames from the blaze it shot like 90 meters, 100 meters into the air. It could be seen from 100 kilometers away. Uh, it is in the North Sea, somewhere really cold and freezing. And, and at first, the, locker, the, the workers on this uh, oil rig they locked themselves right, in a room, uh, hoping that the fire would burn out or that the emergency systems would kick in and put out the fire. Eventually, three men, uh, they come out of this room, realizing it wasn't going to happen, and they made it to the edge of the platform of this rig. Uh, and they stood on the edge, staring into one of the, the world's coldest and roughest seas. And they had two choices. They could either uh, stay on this platform and hope that the, the fires wouldn't engulf them, or they could jump and take the risk, right, into the sea. The, uh, certain risk... Uh, death, maybe even, of hypothermia and drowning. And so the story is that of the three, two jumped and one stayed and died. Right? Now, the corporate world has taken on this story as part of their kind of business principles and came up with an important concept called the burning platform. Two powerful lessons must be learned from this story. And the lessons are this. The unacceptable option, the unacceptable option of staying the same and the radical, risky change is essential, right? Radical, risky change is essential. Now, obviously, the business world takes this to talk about corporate change. But when you think about this lesson and think about the gospel, the stakes are even higher, isn't it? As believers, don't we believe that we live among people who are standing on the edge of a burning platform, and we know that it will blow up? There is just this unacceptable option of staying the same. And yes, it sounds risky. It sounds even maybe stupid to jump into the Christian faith. But, you know, we could scrub that second. It's not risky at all. It's radical, but it is not risky. Because our salvation has been secured by something that has already happened. The death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's time for us Christians to stand up, to start getting ready in this hostile world to be able to explain what we believe, to be able to find ways of talking about judgment and hell. I may suggest not doing it the Israel Falau way and just splashing it on your Instagram, right, with verses that need explaining in person, but I would suggest that we ought to talk about it with our friends and family, to figure out wise and winsome and, and, and ways of saying things that make sense. And to know that when we get through the bad news of the gospel, we have the good news that we land on to finish. That we can talk about how we are bound for destruction, that we are broken beyond repair, but then be able to share the glorious news of how we can have faith in God who through Jesus brings us salvation. I wonder when's the last time we spoke of the bad news which made such joy of the good news. Maybe there's something that we can think about doing today and in the coming days. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, your word does cut to, cut to our hearts, cuts to our souls. As we hear this confronting message, as Jesus comes into his corrupt city, into his corrupt temple, and sees that the sin and the corruption, the faithlessness and fruitfulness is all the way to the very core. And it reflects the wider biblical teaching that all humanity is under a curse because we too are rotten to the core. It is a hard message to hear. For we like to think of ourselves as good people who do good things. And in that sense, we, we, it is true. You do affirm that we are like trees with green leaves. But yet you so lovingly show us what we're really like on the inside, that we are sinful by nature, that we are far, far away from who you create us to be, that we so treat you in such a dishonoring and disrespectful way that the only solution is destruction before there can be salvation. Even as you impress upon our hearts this difficult message, we pray too that you will shine the awesome and beautiful light of your salvation in Jesus. Help us to put our faith in you. Help us to trust in what your son has done for us, that he was destroyed for our sake so that we can be saved. Please help us to receive this wonderful news, but please help us also to share it with others that sometimes the bad news needs to be shared in its, in its horrible darkness in order that we may understand and appreciate the immense joy and grace and mercy and love of the good news of salvation. Please equip us for this task, we pray in Jesus' name.